Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of April, St. Evans will be donating to Welcome to Chinatown, a grassroots initiative that is supporting and amplifying community voices to preserve one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop Vintage 
do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Welcome to Clothes Wars, the podcast that had an Instagram comment pinned by a diet Prada, you know, at the top of the post, and then learned really fast to regret it because I was bombarded by trolls, like racist trolls, and eventually had to just delete my comment because, you know, I just don't need that. Wow, the internet social media, Instagram, it has gotten so wild during the pandemic. It's anyway, we might do an episode of the department about it at some point because it's so wild to me. (laughs) Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 68. Jenna of Genron is back for the second half of our conversation, and we'll be talking about all the usual things that come up around here. Faux leather, capitalism and, you know, changing the world, NBD. But you'll also learn about something called rub tests and a lot of other testing and laws around home textiles. It's really interesting. I also have an anonymous message from a listener who lives in a socialist country. So she's going to tell us all about her experiences there, specifically with healthcare and education. And I'll be talking about the second pillar of capitalism, supply and demand. But as always, I would like to remind you because, you know, I live in a capitalist system that requires that I try to get paid for my work, that if you're interested in supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, sharing a content on Instagram, leaving a review on Apple podcasts, and just for listening. Thank you so much. I know that April, aka Capitalism Month, has barely started. I mean, we're not even halfway through it yet, but I wanted to give you a little heads up about next month's theme because I want to hear from all of you. You are a very important part of next month's theme, and that is labor. 
We'll be talking about workers' rights, unions, the fight to raise the minimum wage, and I want to hear from all of you about your experiences in your jobs, both the good and the bad. I want to talk about the things that bug you about your job, what you think could be better, how your jobs make you feel, maybe things you've observed that you think are unethical, how you feel you've been treated. There's so much to talk about here. Let's talk about performance reviews, the process of searching for a job, which sucks, the idea of paying your dues, coworkers, interoffice drama, etc. I want to hear from all of you. You can call the Close Horse Hotline. You can send me a recorded voice memo using your phone or your computer, or we can have a short conversation. So reach out. Or if, you know, talking out loud is not your jam, but you really have a lot to say, you could write something for closehorse.world because we started this with Capitalism Month where we are creating content around capitalism for both the podcast and the blog, and we're going to continue that forward for the rest of time. So Maybe you have a labor story you'd like to talk about at closehorse.world. I'm thinking back to a few weeks ago when Susan wrote her amazing It Happened to Me about changing the conditions under which she worked in a department store. Something like that would be amazing to read for Labor Month or even Meredith a couple weeks ago talking about how sort of the rise of fast fashion and also the decline in headcount at her job in the fast fashion industry made working in that industry really, really hard. These are all things to think about and our labor matters. And I also just want to underscore that you don't have to work in fashion for your story about labor to be important to the conversation. So no matter what you do, I want to hear about it. Okay, well, let's plug in the Hello Kitty phone because we have an intercontinental phone call coming all the way from Europe. Hello, Amanda. I really like your podcast. And uh, I also live in more socialist countries, so I thought I'll record some experience of mine for you. I have to say that even though um, my country is in Europe, and um, but in this particular country, country that I live in, let's say it's not economically that developed, um, definitely not as much as some other countries. So I'm not sure if that's the experience you wanted to hear, but still, we do have free medical care and much cheaper, uh, compared to the US, higher education. So also my partner and also my best friend, two different people, uh, happen to both be from the US. Um, So I know a little bit secondhand from them, like how things works there. Uh, so you asked in a previous episode, how does that feel to live in a, in this kind of country? So before I met my partner and my best friend, I was complaining a lot about medical services here because, uh, you know, there are lines. It's, it's run by government, so there are lines. You have to call many times um, until you get an appointment. Once I spent the whole morning calling to get an appointment for my daughter to just see a normal doctor like pediatrician, you know, just because this is how it works. Everybody calls in the morning and then it's always busy and there's not enough people to reply to, to all of these calls. To some specific doctors like dentists or dermatologists, you can only get an appointment in two, three weeks. Um, 
of course, it's, if it's some like severe case, there are also like places to go and get help for free. If like something hurts or like, I don't know, you, you cut something and it's like open wound, of course, you, that it, there are other places to go. But if it's just some problem you need to like address, it's going to be a long, long waiting list. It's, it's in general a mess and a lot of people complaining about it. However, when I was pregnant, I paid absolutely nothing for doctor visits to the doctor, gynecologist that needed to see me during pregnancy a couple of times. Granted, I had like pretty easygoing pregnancy and I didn't need much of medical care, but still all of that was free. And also I paid nothing for the, for a given birth in a hospital. And the story is maybe a little bit more unique than majority of people will have because I had some um, post-C-section complications. The baby was fine, but I was kind of not. And once the doctor who delivered my child found found out that uh, I was a single mother and I lived by myself, like at that time I, I lived just by myself, he strongly advised me to stay in a hospital until I was completely fine. They basically wouldn't let me and the baby out until I was fine. Meaning I was fine in a way that I was not like going to die or anything. But for example, it was very difficult for me. And in general, they didn't they advised me to not pick up the baby by myself. Like, uh, so long story short, that took 24 days. I was in a hospital for 24 days. And um, for 24 days, I was fed, like people bringing me food to my bed. Uh, the nurse would come into my room every time my daughter was crying and passed her to me so I could breastfeed her. And uh, yeah, and for 24 days, <laughs> I was in this kind of situation and I paid absolutely nothing for it. Now, when I met my best friend, that uh, American woman who recently moved here, well, recently at that time, um, when we met, she's already living here now for two years. But um, so when we met, um, she was still paying off her to the hospital her for giving birth to her daughter. Can you imagine? And her daughter was almost four years old. Um, also, before I met my partner, I didn't know that there was not like overall like basic insurance in the U.S. like like we have here. Um, I grew up with that system, so I thought it's like well, you know, I was probably ignorant, but I thought it's everywhere like that, more or less. You know, I thought it's everywhere probably suck, but it's there. You know, so if, for example, you get hit by a car, it's not that you're gonna wake up. Uh, <laughs> let's say four days later and you have a like enormous bill to pay because you were in a hospital for so long. Like I didn't know that kind of thing could happen. Um, and another thing that is quite different is education. I personally spent nothing on my education because I, um, I don't, that's probably rather unusual, but I also was studying like a while back. Um, and Maybe I'm a little bit more gifted academically, but I I have two degrees and for both of them I got full scholarship, so I didn't have to pay at all. Um, my family is rather poor, so if I didn't get scholarships, I wouldn't study at all. So for me, that was like a huge luck. But in general, I feel like maybe majority of people here can afford a degree or at least you can... Um, you can work in the evening, for example, and pay for your studies. I mean, it doesn't cost that much that is absolutely unaffordable for the majority of people. 
Um, so at the moment, both my partner and I um, are not in a great place financially. Uh, to give you some perspective, since the beginning of pandemic, when we both faced significant decrease in income, we we have like a piece of paper on a fridge where we write down everything we buy. Um, there is only two categories, basically food and other. And at the end of every month, we, we were looking at it and deciding where else we can cut possibly like down a bit um, and spend a little bit less maybe next month. And for the last four months, the, in the column other, we only had one expense. It was a veterinary bill for one of our pets that got sick and had to be seen by a doctor. And that's it. Like everything else was just spent on the food. And we're still kind of like basically wondering every month if we can pay rent or not. Um, but even though we're both kind of poor and make not much money at the moment, we're poor in a very different way, I feel like. Because I have no savings, but I also have no debts. I never owned a credit card like in my life. All of my cards are debit cards. And I never even like had an opportunity to spend money that I didn't yet owned. Uh, plus I have my degrees. So I kind of hoping that when people, when maybe like pandemic is over and people will stop hiring again, that I could possibly get um, not too bad of a job. Um, my partner, on the other hand, has no degrees. Uh, he went to university for two years and then his parents couldn't pay anymore and he really didn't want to talk to take um, a student loan. So he quit and as a result, that's where he is now. And he also has um, over $3,000 debt on the credit cards, which for me is like, I, I didn't even know people like have that kind of debts on the credit cards. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if any of this is helpful. I never lived in the US. Like, um, my partner lives basically moved to, to my country when we, you know, when we started to date. Um, and since then, for many years, he lives here and I live here and we all live here. So I never lived there. I've, I visited a couple of times, but I, all of my experience is just secondhand from other people. I have no idea. I guess that's it. Have a nice day. Wow, Dustin and I listened to this message together and we both gasped audibly at the possibility of spending 24 days in the hospital and not having to declare bankruptcy afterwards. Now, I know that socialized healthcare can have its drawbacks. Like the caller said, it can be challenging to get an appointment to see a doctor unless it's urgent. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Critics of socialism say that the lack of competition makes it inefficient. That could be causing the long wait times for appointments, but then again, I've experienced the same thing here in the U.S. Even before the pandemic, the U.S. was actually experiencing a shortage of physicians that is expected to grow and grow over the next decade to a shortage of more than 100,000 doctors in the United States. This is partially caused by the high cost of medical school that makes it difficult for many people to enter the career path. And that decline in people going to medical school also very unfortunately coincides with many, many physicians beginning to retire, specifically like, you know, baby boomer physicians. Healthcare is one example of an industry that is failing hundreds of millions of people by being privatized. 
Taking healthcare away from the government and handing it to the private sector is an example of the free market, which is a cornerstone of capitalist theory. Basically, the idea is that prices are determined by unrestricted competition between privately owned businesses. So hospitals, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, health insurance companies, etc., The idea is that the forces of supply and demand will sort of always guarantee that prices seem fair-ish, right? And competition between different healthcare providers would keep prices low and service good. Except, well, the United States spends much more, like so much more, on healthcare as a share of its economy. It's about 17% of GDP. The other large wealthy economies like Germany and the United Kingdom spend almost half of that. Almost all U.S. healthcare is privately provided and 51% of spending is paid for by families, nonprofits, and businesses. Other countries are not only spending less money in total, their citizens are paying for a significantly smaller part of it. This gap in spending is not caused by differences in coverage rates or income levels or even the quality of treatment, but rather by differences in healthcare institutions and policy, i.e. socialized healthcare versus the U.S. private healthcare system. So we're spending way, way more than anyone else. And I went through a whole series of charts and tables that were very disturbing about the financial burden that private healthcare is putting on the average U.S. citizen. I mean, here in the U.S., raise your hand if you skipped going to see a doctor because you just didn't have the money. I remember back in the aughts uh, when I was working retail, I was hit by a car on my bike And it was a hit and run. And so, you know, no one stopped to help me. I didn't get the other person's insurance information. And I broke my jaw. Now, this was a time when I was making just above minimum wage and barely scraping by. Like, we were okay. But, you know, like many Americans, we were one disaster away from homelessness. And here was a minor disaster. Well, I went to the doctor. I had to go to a clinic because even more fun. Even though I had qualified for employer health insurance, like I had just, I don't know, a couple months before that shifted to full time and was like, you know, awarded these benefits. My manager at my job had forgotten to file the paperwork and the company was like, well, now you just have to wait until open enrollment, which was close to a year away. So no health insurance for me. And I made too much money working 40 hours a week at just above minimum wage to qualify for Medicaid. So I go to a clinic. The doctor looks at my jaw. Uh, he's like, yeah, it's, it's broken. The treatment here is too wire it shut. That's going to cost about $800, possibly more between like extra x-rays, follow-up appointments, et cetera. And I was like, I, I I just don't have that, you know? And I mean, that's like more than half of what I make in a month. And so he was like, okay, well, I guess you just have to let it heal and hope for the best and just be really careful. And that's what I did. And it's mostly okay, although it hurts sometimes. But this is the environment we live in here in the United States where often healthcare has to be passed on because we can't afford it. What do Americans get for all that extra, extra spending on healthcare. In the United States, the life expectancy at birth is the lowest of all the largest wealthy nations, and maternal and infant mortality are at their highest. 
among wealthy nations. We know that other systemic issues cause this, like racism, wealth disparity, pollution, etc. But this poor performance of the U.S. healthcare system stands in striking contrast to its extremely high spending on healthcare. And we know that for all the money that the U.S. is spending on healthcare, like I said, it's just not accessible to everyone. In fact, it's not accessible to a lot of people. Furthermore, and this is one of the reasons it's not accessible, prescriptions and medical procedures are significantly more expensive here in the U.S. than other wealthy countries often two to three times the cost. The chart I looked at from the Brookings Institute that broke down some of the most common procedures were really terrifying. Just the number of things that were four or five times more expensive in the United States than in other countries. And we're talking wealthy Western countries. I mean, we are getting fleeced on healthcare here. The same thing for prescriptions. I personally, and I don't know about you, I live in fear of getting sick or injured because I don't know how we'll pay for it. It's no surprise probably to you based on what you see across social media that one third of GoFundMe campaigns are for medical bills, not cool projects or inventions or art. And I've seen firsthand how one larger emergency and how one moderate illness has impacted my financial well-being. You know, for several years, I worked for a startup that did not provide health insurance for its employees, even though the business was doing about $10 million in sales each year. It was, I was embarrassed that I worked for a place that wasn't providing health care, to be honest. I kept it on lockdown for as long as possible. And when it finally started to leak out to my friends, I was, I was ashamed that I had been foolish enough to take a job that was bringing in that kind of money that didn't want to provide health care for us. I mean, stepping back, I'm like, wow, that is some ugly capitalist bullshit, right? So at that point, my only option for health insurance was the ACA, which is the Affordable Care Act. And that insurance started out okay. But then when the Trump administration moved in and slowly began to dismantle it, I saw it become more and more expensive while the coverage decreased and decreased. Like, to an extreme. And at one point, I was paying about $1,000 a month for just my child and I to be covered. And the deductible was just creeping higher and higher. Like my out-of-pocket responsibility, should I get sick, was growing and growing, but it was better than not having health insurance at all, right? I mean, sometimes I I don't know. I actually look back and I'm like, would it have been better to just save $12,000 a year and use that towards medical bills? I don't know. Well, I got mono, which seems like an NBD kind of illness. Like you're not going to feel well for a while. It'll go away. It ended up costing me more than $5,000 out of pocket. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? I had chest x-rays and ultrasound on my spleen, lots of blood work and other tests and medications along the way. I was sick for months, but like not like, oh, I'm in the hospital sick, you know? And I was definitely stressing out about how I was going to pay those medical bills because Dustin was barely getting any work at that point. We were living in a tiny apartment, like just getting by because we were living off of my income. So don't worry, I paid it off. Everything was fine. But it was kind of a crazy wake up call for me that like, what the fuck? Sorry for casting here, guys. But like, why should getting mono turn into like a two year 
payment plan. You know, the caller talked about her friend, her American friend, paying off her child's birth for years. And that is the standard here. I have had many friends on the payment plan for the birth of their child. Anyway, continued to work at this place that didn't offer health insurance because supposedly it was just around the corner. Spoiler, it was not. And the next year, Dylan, my child, had a lot of mental health issues that resulted in multiple hospitalizations, medication, therapy, and so on. And ultimately, it generated tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills that were not covered by our insurance. There were a lot of weird policies around mental health. Any of you out there who have been trying to get mental health treatment will know insurance doesn't cover it in the same way they might if you had cancer. I still don't completely understand all the bills we received from that period because they were so wild and confusing and no one was very helpful about it. But it drained my savings and it stopped me from saving money for years, which set us up for a really shitty situation to lose my job in during a pandemic. Medical bills, being sick, things happening to you like that shouldn't destroy your life or make you live in fear. You shouldn't be in bed sick worrying about how you're going to pay for it. I mean, it's just this like constant fear that we all have that we'll wake up one day in the hospital after being there for a week and realize that we've now spent every dime we're going to make in our lives. That is ridiculous. I know a lot of you are in similar situations with medical bills, student loans, predatory student loan situations. I've heard some terrifying stories there. Health and education should not be a privilege. They are basic rights. Another issue here in the United States is that while we have the public option of the Affordable Care Act, like I was using, the better plans with lower deductibles and co-pays are generally offered by employers. So if you lose your job, like millions of people have in the last year, you're kind of out of luck. In August of 2020, uh, consumer finance company Credit Karma, I'm sure you've seen their advertisements all over Hulu, They conducted an analysis of nearly 20 million members in the U.S. and found that those 20 million people have a total of $45 billion of medical debt that has gone to collections, which is you didn't pay the hospital. Now it's gone into the collection agency. They're going to harass you all the time. And this is going on your credit report. That averages to about $2,200 of debt per member. And also... $2,200 in healthcare debt shouldn't ruin your life, but this can happen. A separate survey during the pandemic shows that 56% of U.S. adults had medical debts sent to collections last year alone. Two-thirds of those people owe less than $5,000, which once again should not be destroying your life, but it is, while 5% of those people owed more than $50,000, which is a terrifying number to me. I just want to say again, 56% of U.S. adults have medical debt in collections right now. Why does that exist? Right there, that shows the free market version of healthcare is not working. Two-thirds of those people who file for bankruptcy cite medical issues as a factor. And not paying medical bills and or filing for bankruptcy to to get out of those medical bills can 
make it nearly impossible to get an apartment, buy a car, even actually get a lot of jobs because so many require a credit check. It's not hyperbole to say that getting sick in the U.S. can literally ruin your life, even if it's a more minor illness like mono. Like, let's think back to me having $5,000 in out-of-pocket medical expenses because I got mono. Well, if I was making minimum wage, I would never be able to pay that $5,000 back. So the virtue of contracting mono, which is a viral illness, out of my control, could have literally ruined my life. It's crazy to think about. It's so, it's enraging to me. And I'm not even going to touch on how the ever-increasing cost of higher education, along with you know, stagnating wages and a shift of jobs into the gig economy, is decimating Americans and their financial future. But I'll just say this, as of January of this year, Americans had $1.57 trillion in student loan debt with an average of $30,000 per person. It's terrifying to me. The, the educational debt along with the healthcare debt is, it makes me angry and makes me afraid. And I see how these basic needs, these rights, these basic human rights are crushing Americans right now. So now that I'm already railing against capitalism, let's talk a little bit more about supply and demand. It's a key component to the function of capitalism. The theory is pretty simple. If the demand for a product is less than the supply, so there's more product than people want to buy, then it will sell at a lower price. You have to keep reducing that price to make it desirable to more people. If demand is higher than the supply, so you know, it's some limited edition item. Uh, they just weren't able to make enough of it. I mean, you know you know how these things go wild. I think about Cabbage Patch Kids in the 80s and how everybody was losing their mind over them. Well, if the demand exceeds the supply, you can charge more because customers will be willing to pay the higher price. In a socialist economy, pricing would completely or at least somewhat be dictated by the government. But in a capitalist system... It's a free-for-all. Here's another real-world example of supply and demand. Let's say there's a drought and the strawberry crops are decimated. Well, now there are going to be more people that want strawberries than there are actually strawberries available. So what will happen is the price of strawberries will increase dramatically. And this kind of thing happens all the time with agricultural goods. Here's one that's practically ripped from the headlines. As of right now here in the U.S., there are 1.4 unemployed people for every job opening out there. This means the supply of workers exceeds the demand. So this puts employers in an ideal situation. They can be super picky about who they offer a job to, and they can pay them less than they would have before the pandemic because It's the employer's job market right now. They control the terms. If the numbers were inverse, so 1.4 job openings for every one unemployed person, the ball would be in the workers' court. They could demand better salaries, benefits. They can negotiate all the terms of their employment, and they could kind of have the pick of the jobs out there. So let's talk about how supply and demand should work in the fashion industry, particularly in fast fashion. We know that clothes are already pretty cheap, right? (laughs) 
cheaper than they were in the 90s, in fact. Theoretically, in a pure supply and demand situation, clothes wouldn't have to be that cheap unless they fit terribly, maybe were low quality and generally not that appealing. Appealing only in that they were so cheap. Like the the low, low cost is the main lure here, right? As you know by now, as a pro clothes horse listener, most major brands and retailers had to become fast fashion in order to stay competitive with the early fast fashion retailers like Forever 21 and H&M. And this became especially clear after the 2008 financial crisis, where the demand of clothing dropped exponentially as people lost jobs and coped with the recession. You know, one thing that comes around time and time again in industry conversations is that when people have less money, the first thing they stop buying is clothing, which I think is very interesting because it's not like we've all been getting rich over here in the United States after I just talked about how the burden of healthcare and education is kind of killing us. Yet we're buying tons of clothes. (laughs) That's a whole other thing. Anyway, in the midst of the recession, the demand for clothing went away right away. So all clothes had to be marked down a great deal in order to be sold because the supply was greatly exceeding demand. The expectation across the board from the industry was that our collective appetite for clothing and therefore our willingness to pay higher prices would return as the economy recovered. But it's so weird. It never really did. Our appetite for clothing returned, but we decided that we wanted lots and lots of cheap clothes and we wanted to buy them as often as possible. So we never went back to the old higher prices. The industry adapted, of course, as you know, by making more and more and more new stuff, by making clothes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And Well, you know everything that that led to. Things got weird from an economic perspective because clothes couldn't really become cheaper. And at this point, that was kind of how retailers were competing, staying competitive by reducing prices. And it was also confusing because our demand was super high. In in the traditional rules of supply and demand, if our demand is that high, then the price should be higher, right? So it's already like getting really weird. We wanted new clothes all the time, but we just didn't want to pay much money for them. The rules of supply and demand were just falling apart, so things got even weirder. For one, things were being made so fast because trends were moving so fast. By the way, trends totally created by this industry in the first place and like all the media surrounding it. Retailers were trying every possible way to get ahead of the competition in terms of delivering these trends before anyone else. Retailers could no longer coast on having the cheapest prices or the hottest deals because they had all raced their way to the bottom in terms of pricing. They were all already there. There was no way to distinguish one another unless you started just giving clothes away for free. I look at Forever 21 as a really great example of how the industry got really weird after everybody else dropped their prices so low. The original novelty of Forever 21 that helped them to build a massive business was that you could go there, spend maybe 50 bucks, and walk out with a bag of clothes, like multiple outfits, whereas a lot of the other retailers out there 
$50 might not even buy you one article of clothing. You know what I mean? Like this was a sharp contrast. And sure, you went to Forever 21, you got $50 worth of clothes and the quality wasn't great. The fit wasn't ideal, but you didn't care because it was so cheap. Well, that is what helped Forever 21 grow. But when everybody else was cheap, everyone else was the same price, suddenly Forever 21 found themselves struggling to differentiate themselves. And this is around the time that suddenly Forever 21 had a permanent sales section. Like I remember that nothing was ever on sale at Forever 21 because they didn't need to. It was just going in and out of the store so fast. And then one day there was a sales section and it just never went away. The demand was so low for Forever 21 product that prices had to go even lower for them, which seemed almost impossible. And I remember seeing a rack in a Forever 21 a couple years ago that was both 50% off the lowest price and buy one, get one free because this is the point that they had reached. And so had a lot of other retailers too. What could only keep these retailers competitive now was moving faster and faster because cheaper and cheaper had already bottomed out. More and more buying and design teams started adding members whose sole focus was what we call chase, meaning turning around trend product, chasing into it as fast as possible, while maybe the rest of the buying and design team stayed on the normal calendar of planning styles three to four months in advance, although that was shortened over time to maybe two months and over time, we were expected to place orders for clothing a lot closer to delivery than we ever had before. All of this faster and faster decision-making and product creation meant that there was a lot of duds, just styles that no one wanted, hitting stores and websites. So much product that wasn't working because it didn't fit or it wasn't that cute or was the wrong trend or color or every other retailer had already gotten it all of those things. There was so much extra inventory that would never sell. And I just want to add, there was all this inventory that was never going to sell. And this was after the massive amount of returns that retailers received and just wrote off the books and either sold off or sent to the landfill. Because we've talked about this here, that the act of actually receiving your return, inspecting it, repackaging it, and putting it back in its inventory cost more than the product itself. But also, the retailer just doesn't need it. They already have way more stuff than they're ever going to sell. By early 2020, the fashion industry was overproducing 30 to 40 percent each season. About $210 billion worth of clothing was being made every year that would never sell. Supply was exceeding demand by so much that retailers had to push prices lower and lower via a complex web of markdowns and coupon codes and BOGO deals, anything they could get you to do to just buy a little bit more of that excess inventory they'd made. 30% of what was actually sold was sold at a discount, meaning marked down. It's sobering to step back and say, wow, less than half of the clothing that is made every year is actually sold at full price. 
Now, the pandemic kind of blew up the fashion industry. We've talked about that here before in a very similar way to the 2008 recession. Demand for clothing plummeted, which is especially perilous when we already know that there was so much overproduction in the first place. You know, retailers reacted by canceling everything on order, knowing that they already had way more inventory for the year than they would ever sell in the first place. Of course, you're probably saying, so why not just keep selling that stuff? Why did they continue to get new stuff later? Well, (laughs) there's a catch about all of this. And this is like buying 101, I guess, or maybe it's 102 because you learn this after doing it for a while. You can't ever say, hey, guys, we have enough stuff in the store and on the website. So Let's not buy anything new until we see all of that sell. Because the unfortunate truth for anyone who works in this business, we've all had to learn it the hard way, is that clothing becomes less appealing with each month it's for sale. So its sales will decrease every month. So if you already weren't selling a lot of that style in, say, March, you're definitely not going to be selling it to any important, impactful degree in September. That's why as a buyer, as a company, as a retailer, whatever, you need to bring in new stuff all the time. I actually at one point worked for a company that hadn't taken markdowns in more than a year, meaning they hadn't put anything on sale because they didn't want to hurt their profit margin. And all that was really happening was that they were literally paying their third-party warehouse to store all of this stuff that no one wanted while also missing the opportunity to sell stuff to customers that only comes with delivering new stuff regularly. So to try to make a somewhat complex inventory management (laughs) theory and practice uh, more understandable, basically you reach a point where it's better to sell clothing for any price, no matter how low, to even get just a little bit of cash back into your sort of pockets, if you will, into your pocketbook, your wallet, so that you can buy new stuff to bring back in. And that new stuff is always, unless it's really terrible, a better impact on your business than that older stuff, like holding onto it and selling it at full price. So it's always about moving it through, keeping the cash flowing so you can buy more new stuff, so customers will buy that and on and on and on. People want new stuff. Even before the rise of fast fashion, people always wanted something new. And clothes depreciate in value practically the moment they exist. It's very depressing when you think about all the work that goes into them. So I can assure you, now that you know that, that a lot of orders that were canceled early in the pandemic were replaced with new orders for more pandemic-appropriate stuff. Yes, A lot of those original orders were canceled because retailers didn't know when business would return to normal, but they also knew that all the dresses and purses and jewelry and dress shoes and whatnot that they had bought for spring and summer for like wedding season and graduations and all of that were not going to sell. So that inventory was going to be even more of a liability. Not only would there be less people coming to shop, but no one was going to want to buy these things that they couldn't wear. So They canceled everything. They canceled the dress orders and shifted it into sweatpants. They replaced the going out shoes with slippers. They canceled the jewelry orders and brought in masks instead. 
fashion continued to produce and produce and produce during the pandemic on top of refusing to pay for all the stuff that they had canceled that had already been produced. So we're talking some major, major overproduction in 2020. Some people like to say that the pandemic was a reset or a moment of reckoning for the industry, but I would say it continues to be business as usual. (laughs) New stuff all the time at the cheapest price and more than we could actually ever buy. And by the way, even before the pandemic, the fashion industry, like literally, I was just reading a bunch of publications from January and February of last year. The industry was being warned, especially all the big retailers that had become fast fashion, that in 2020, the industry would slow down pretty significantly as people were getting over fast fashion. The only country in the world that seemed like it had growth potential for clothing sales was China. Industry analysts said, you know, this constant overproduction and selling stuff at rock bottom prices wasn't working anymore, and it was going to drive them out of business. Industry publications warned that retailers should start thinking about issues like sustainability because their customers now cared more about that than the appeal of cheap and trendy clothes. The message was clear. Expect your sales to fall unless you change drastically. Guess what? No one did. (laughs) Although it's no coincidence that we have seen more and more greenwashing nonsense in the past few months. For example, I want to remind you that H&M has been known to burn literally billions of dollars in unsold inventory, burning it. And yet they drop these so-called conscious collections that seem to be completely unconscious about workers' rights, but maybe contain some recycled polyester. Influencers and customers fall for it. But H&M's CEO has said very bluntly to many different media outlets, essentially, no one wants to buy our clothes as they are right now, so we're going to differentiate ourselves by marketing sustainability really heavily. Well, sure, they're making some sustainability collections. And like, listen, I love that they're raising awareness about sustainability, but they're not really walking the walk here because H&M has more than 5,600 women's styles alone on its site right now. That is just like the next level of overproduction right there. And when I see that, I know that they didn't listen to anything that analysts were saying last year. Nothing has changed. And supply continues to very obviously exceed demand based on the sheer volume of styles I saw on sale for under $5 on H&M's site. The thing is, other retailers are following their lead. I saw a rack of $5 t-shirts made of recycled polyester at Target that claimed to be a sustainable option. Do we need t-shirts made from recycled bottles? I'm going to just go ahead and say no. And how much were the people who made those shirts paid? I mean, these shirts sell for $5. It couldn't have been more than a penny a piece. Fashion hasn't said, hey, Let's stop overproducing. Let's figure out what people want. No, it's continuing that. It's thinking that somehow they can cash in on sustainability or anti-racism or whatever they think is important to their customers. They can market to that and somehow beat out all the other retailers by weaponizing our desire for a better world. Because going cheaper than everybody else stopped working, going faster than everybody else stopped working. So now we're just going to 
very shallowly embrace things that are important to our customers without fixing all the other things that are essentially destroying our businesses and our planet. I have to say fashion is the only industry I can think of that gets away with overproducing year after year of ignoring the very classic capitalist rules of supply and demand. The thing is here, we're talking about countless gallons of water, barrels of oil, farmland used for cotton, trees harvested to make rayana viscose, humans exploited to sow and sow and sow. Also that 30 to 40% of all that stuff that's being made can never be worn. It's such a waste. And when you start to see just all the things that were wasted along the way, it begins to feel unforgivable. Okay, well, that was supply and demand. I got real riled up there. I hope you did too. In our next episode, I'll be explaining another pillar of capitalism, competition. We touched on it here slightly, but I promise there's so much more to talk about. Well, let's jump back into my conversation with Jenna. We're going to start things off really hot. Just keep this episode hot by getting into faux leather. So let's go. Speaking of the apparel industry and being scammy, we started talking about vegan leather when we were getting ready for this. And, you know, first off, I'm I'm trying my hardest to cancel the term vegan leather. So Me too. <laughs> I'm going to try to call it pleather or imitation leather or artificial leather for the part, rest of our conversation, which is really hard because it's been beaten into my head, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Faux leather is a major part of home textile industry. Like, you know, specifically in the area of furniture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see it all the time, like go to the airport, a hospital, you know, hotel, like there's more and more just, I'm, I'm saying this like anecdotally, I don't have data on it, but it seems like there's more and more furniture that is made of faux leather than not anymore, like in public spaces, which you kind of, it kind of makes sense, right? Cause you can like hose it down basically. Uh It's plastic, but, uh, I was telling you like, oh, you know, back in the day when I started researching the rise of vegan leather as it was right now, I'm remembering now that like actually it was initially invented, the very early versions of it, for furniture use specifically. Because like if you went to someone in like 1950 and said, hey, how would you like to wear this faux leather garment? They would have laughed at you. Mm -hmm. like. No one wants it. No one wanted it in the 60s. No one wanted it in the 70s that much either. You know, Naga Hyde was kind of a flop. But I did some more reading, and it all really started with something called Rexine, which was a leather cloth fabric made in the UK. And it was – this is really gross. I mean, if you think that uh, faux leather as it exists right now isn't disgusting enough, oh, this no. was – this was a cloth that was coated with a mixture of nitrocellulose, camphor oil, alcohol, and then pigment. So it would be like this thick, waxy, chemical, Ooh. weird layer. And then they would emboss it with like stamps to have like a fake leather texture. I actually, when I was reading about this, I had this like really visceral memory of the seats on the school bus when I was a mm-hmm. kid and how they had that texture. And I was, I mean, I'm sure they weren't that old, but they may as well have been. Um, 
And this was specifically designed for two purposes, uh, the interiors of cars and like trains Mm -hmm. and also for covering books. So it gives you an idea of what it was like. And, you know, along like a decade or so later came actual polyurethane, which is what we know, and, and, you know, polyvinyl chloride PVC, which we know as the primary faux leathers that we live with now. But- I was wondering if in the home textile industry, do they call it vegan leather? Like, do they push the so-called vegan, like, aspect of it? Or is it just like, nah, this is plastic. If someone pees on it, it's no big deal. So at the interior design level, yes, they definitely push it. I would say at the company that I work for, when we're just in distribution, where we don't really talk to the main consumer that much, we just called it vinyl. But vegan mm-hmm. leather is, um, like, I'm sure we relay it to them as vinyl and then the interior designers floral it up for vegan leather because everybody's a sucker for vegan leather. I remember when I worked at Free People and I wanted this jacket that they had really bad. It was like $450. And I would have never in a million years at my, like, 20-year-old self, if they had been like, it's plastic. Would I have spent four hundred and fifty dollars on? No, um, no, definitely not. <laughs> but they called it vegan leather, and I was like, I'm vegetarian. I don't like <laughs> animal products. Yes. Um, now, me being a full meat eater and like <laughs> covered in vintage <laughs> leather, um, I'm like, if it already exists and it's real leather, I'm I'm here for it because right, I'm right. anti-plastic. But um, yeah, definitely in our industry, we push. PVC and P like P polyurethane like like it is real leather. Um, actually, the company that I worked for started as a fabric and leather distribution center, and they still do sell actual leather very rarely. Um, they have a separate warehouse for it because of how it needs to be kept to uh, it has to be at a certain temperature and a certain way to keep it from aging. Um, but we rarely sell that, like rarely. Um, the push now is for the, the vinyl because of its durability and all of its testing that it has. So we sell it even down to the residential. And I think it's because people want the look of the leather. Like mm-hmm. who doesn't like beautiful leather sofa? You can get that look with plastic. Like sometimes it's even hard for me to tell the difference if it's real or not because now that I've worked in the industry feeling it, like some of the the vinyls that we had felt like real leather, like that soft, mm-hmm. like it would age with it, it would even look tanned. Um, all of that is done <laughs> with chemicals. Everything, all of that is chemical based. Um, but we do market it like it looks like real leather. And that mm-hmm. is what, you know, I'm sure the apparel industry was still going on. Like you can have that look without, you know, the animal byproduct. Um or you can have that look, but with it being more long lasting. But it comes with a cost because everything has a warning label on it now. And everything's plastic. How long is that going to take to degrade? Um, thousands of years. A whole sofa too? A whole sofa. And then you have to remember that the sofa is also stuffed with polyurethane foam, which mm-hmm. is also not biodegradable. And fun fact, most uh, faux leather is made of the same like uh, fibers, polymers, as that foam. It's kind of like plastic can masquerade itself in so many crazy ways. Like 
also think like faux fur starts as the same polymer fibers too. Like it's kind of wild <laughs> what they can do with plastic. Like if only we had taken all of that innovation and skill and genius and put it into something that wasn't plastic. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. I mean, when plastic was invented, I'm sure people were like, this is the best thing ever because it is durable. I'm, and like, I think that plastic should be used in very certain places, like I said, a hospital or uh, something. But if we had worked on the innovation, you, like you said, to like come up with something even better than plastic that, you know, was degradable like that was still hospital quality I think there is still an answer for that out there that it's just not being explored because of how useful these little fibers are like like you said it can hide as everything um even like I got something at the thrift store that is cane and I thought it was cane wood cane and I looked you know got it home and realized that it was plastic cane it was fake Uh. (laughs) like oh no like, and I was like, it can be anything. Plastic can look like wood. It can look like leather. It can look like fabric. Um, I mean, I uh, was in charge of inputting all of the like contents for the website into a system, a server. So it would like pop up on their website. And I put in all of the backing information, like what's on the back of the fabric and all the contents of the fabric. And rarely would I see cotton. And if it was cotton, it was like 3% cotton. Everything else was polyester, rayon, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. chenille. Ev- all of that just to me reads plastic, 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 plastic. Yes, <laughs> yes. Just a fancy way to say plastic. Yeah, it all is. It all is, you know. And I, I feel like I want to just like wear a sign, just like walk around wearing a sign that says I am anti-plastic. Like that is a bold statement in 2021 because <laughs> – it's everywhere. Like I'm even looking at the table that I'm sitting at and it's definitely like coated with some sort of like plastic coating. Oh yeah. I'm currently sitting on a vinyl chair. I can't yeah, even like exactly. to be transparent. I have a vinyl chair that I'm sitting on. <laughs> we need to use the plastic that already exists as much as we can because it's going to be around for a really, really, really long time. Like we don't even actually know how long it takes plastic to break down because plastic hasn't been around long enough for us to know. That's scary for as prevalent as it is. Yeah, for sure. The industry just went balls to the wall with plastic before realizing the repercussions of it. (laughs) Yeah. And I I feel like that's kind of how humans work. I mean, if you told my grandpa, like when he was 20 years old in the fifties, that cigarettes would kill you he would be like what no they don't they don't they don't say that because then they realize like oh all these people are dying and they all smoked cigarettes Mm -hmm. oh no they're bad for you and it like turned around and I feel like that's how we are about plastic like um but we do it in a really subtle way like um with like little warning labels or like this is recyclable but like what is actually being recycled isn't what you put in your gar in your yeah. recycling bin, yeah. like most of that doesn't get recycled. No, just gets I don't want to be like the bearer of bad news, yeah. But like it comes down to even I've seen the trash truck come through and just take all the cans, even the recycled ones, and throw it in the thing. And I'm like, no. Yes, I've seen that a few <laughs> times, and I was very upset. I thought I was confused. In fact, the first time I saw it happen was right after we moved to Philadelphia, and I was like, oh my god like 
they just put I, – I was like, Dustin, they just put the recycling in the regular uh, truck. And he was like, no, they didn't. And I'm like, yes, they did. And he's like, why would they do that? And I'm like, I don't know, but <laughs> – And then that turns people off. Like, I'm not going to recycle because it yeah. just goes in the same thing. And I'm like, well, at least I'm still trying. <laughs> yeah, still I still got to try. I do remember when we f- first moved to Philly – there was something going on where Philly had actually secretly been burning all the recycling for like a year mm-hmm. or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot more common than you think. Uh, it happens just about everywhere, especially since China has stopped accepting all of our plastic recycling. And that was because we were sending too much, we were sending too many different kinds, and we weren't sending it clean or anything. So just got just to gotta cut back. You talk about plastic and people see the water bottle – they see the bag that their salad came in, but they don't see their faux leather jacket or their couch. And it's like, no, that's this is so prevalent. You and I talked about uh, all the weird testing that goes on with furniture because, of course, there's so much fear of being sued, right? Yes. Like that's where all this stuff comes from and that's why, you know, uh, flame retardant use is like out of control and everything else, which we've talked about on previous episodes do you want to tell us about some of the weird tests that go on yeah so like they're pretty weird they're they all have <laughs> weird names so i hope i don't pronounce them wrong um because i've heard them pronounced many ways but um the most prevalent one is the rub test this rub tests are the hot thing when you're talking to people about samples like if they're like i want a sample that has a million double rubs well what does that mean well, it's basically <laughs> gross. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> gross, right? Like at first, like since I, you know, told you my history, I'm not hip to. I fell into an industry, like I think I just fall fell face first into something and didn't like fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like I look like I know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, um, but I actually had to learn a lot <laughs> to, to actually <laughs> like figure it out. Um, the wise, it's called the Weizenbeck test. Um, every fabric goes through this. So like when a new fabric is developed, it goes through this test to see how much it can withstand without pilling. Um, I've been told in the industry that after 100,000 double rubs, it's really obsolete. And that this is a very subjective test because you could get it tested at five different companies that do the Weizenbeck test. And they would all come back with different numbers because in the industry, you pay up to a certain amount of double rubs. So say Sunbrella is a really big, popular brand that my company used to sell. Um, they sell um, its indoor outdoor fabric. Um, Sunbrella pays for the Weizenbeck test up to 100,000 double rubs. That doesn't mean that it can't be rubbed 300,000 times. They just only paid for 100. So every once in a while, they will pay to have it rubbed more, which sounds hilarious. <laughs> like, I'm telling it now and I'm like, ooh. Uh, like, all about the rubs. So you pay the to get it rubbed more and like for instance vinyl and vegan leather um some of them have double rubs that say like two million five hundred thousand times what does that mean that's just marketing it's all marketing (laughs) um you think it's more durable than anything else um they just paid a lot of money to have it rubbed a lot of times. Um, <laughs> and why would you want something like that? Well, if you have it at a hotel or, for instance, like the seats on the subway or the bus, it's going to get rubbed a lot. And mm-hmm. people are going to sit on it and move it. You want something that will withstand so that you don't have to repurchase as often. 
unfortunately, people still do purchase just as often as what we're figure- finding out. So do you really need something that's rubbed that much? The second most difficult thing is flammability. There are a lot of laws, mm-hmm. especially in California, about what how flammable things can be. And uh, I mean, I have inputted that all of these fabrics pass a certain test like thousands of times um, until I actually researched what the test meant. I didn't realize how they did this, but um, there is a law, California AB 2998, um, which standardizes <laughs> that re- residential upholstery furniture must be able to withstand 12 seconds of open flame on upholstery fabric and memory foam, thus requiring ah, a flame okay. retardant treatment. What is that treatment? Okay. Chemicals. Yeah, though they're terrible. A ke- terrible chemical. They're way overused. I did an episode a while back about how uh, basically our abuse of flame retardants, which are highly toxic, very bad for humans and animals, it got out of control because the cigarette industry wanted to sort of push the blame away from them in the middle of the last century when people were constantly burning their houses mm-hmm. down because they were smoking really irresponsibly. Like they would fall asleep smoking, smoke on the couch, you you know. And on top of that, back then cigarettes were actually highly flammable. And I know that sounds that sounds like so, yeah, like, duh, they have to be flammable. They light on fire. But I'm talking like highly flammable. Mm-hmm. Like if you were smoking a cigarette and someone knocked in the door and you put it in the ashtray and came back, it might be, be completely on fire. Like they yeah. were just like, they were just paper and tobacco, you know, they burned like crazy and they would start fires. And that goes to like the other major test. It's by the National Fire Protection Association. This test is designed to um, find out the resistance of the upholstered furniture when exposed to smoldering cigarettes. So they literally will use a cigarette, put it on the couch, light it on fire and see how much of the couch burns. Um, it says in order to pass this test, it said it needs to be less than 65% of the couch for at least four hours. And so I was doing this research cause like at my work, they, you don't need to, they're like, you don't need to know that a lot of it's need to know. Uh, so when I looked it up, <laughs> since it's public knowledge, I was reading it to a friend that was over and they were like, okay, but if 65% of the couch is on fire, so is your house. Because like it's touching yeah. the wall, which is touching the floor, which is touching everything. So like curtains. Why? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if it's on fire, it's on fire. And I thought that was hilarious because I didn't think about it like that. Sixty-five percent <laughs> is a lot of the couch. Um, yeah. If it doesn't, re- if it's over sixty-five percent, which is also I find a little subjective. You look at it and go, that's more like seventy percent of the couch. Then the fabric and the memory foam has to go through another flame retardant. Uh, so they treatment. burn another couch. Oh yeah, they just burn couches to test. That oh my that's god, really that the only way. The only way to ca- to test it is to te- is to burn the material. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's there's a bunch of different testing sites, so you could get like the other thing that I find is if you don't like their opinion the mill will probably test it at a different company to get a better result. So this is getting tested in multiple different places. And then, you know, the Mm -hmm. best result is being published because it's a marketing term. But some of them are like, yes, we do have to comply to these laws. But like you said, there's no innovation of like, how could we do it without covering it in chemicals? Like, how could we make it flame retardant without using flame retardant material? Because a lot of the fabric that we sold, I would say... 
85 to 90% of all of the material that we sold at this company met these standards. If it didn't met the standards, it, we probably won't sell it for very much longer. Um, mm-hmm. Because just based on selling it to a company, they have to adhere to these laws. Um, there's even ones for like, I'm not sure about these obscure tests because like some of our fabric was like ape, like passed these tests for like marine, uh, like like for boats and cruise ships. There's even more. Uh, there's so many more laws about flame retardant for cruise ships that I, I uh, if I ever meet someone that you know does stuff with that, I would ask them a thousand questions because we would talk about it all the time. Apparently, everything that is like the only thing that can be flammable on a cruise ship is something you can throw off the, the boat. So wow. everything else that can't be easily thrown off a boat has to have flame retardant on Which it. is highly subjective. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of crazy. And what that says to me is like, oh my God, like already we know cruise ships are like cesspools of disease, but now we also <laughs> know that you're just being exposed to flame retardants nonstop in the air, in the bed, on the couch, on the chair, probably on the deck. And that stuff is bad for you. It's, it's like, so bad for you. It's one more reason not to go on a cruise ship. It's so bad for you to the point where, like, they, we have to put a warning label on it telling you that you can get cancer from it, um, which mm-hmm. I guess is the other thing that we were going to talk about. Um, a lot of our samples, like every vinyl that we would sell at our company, would have this little tiny warning label on it that said, the warning label specifically on vinyl. Warning, cancer and reproductive harm. And then it would have a website of p65warnings.ca.gov. This is a warning that is provided on all of our vinyls. And I've read that probably thousands of times. And when we decided to do this uh, talk, I decided to click on the website and see what it said. It said, (laughs) Uh uh-oh. If a warning is placed on a product labeled or posted or distributed at a workplace, a business, or in a retail housing, the business issuing the warning is aware or believes that is that it is exposing individuals to one or more of the listed chemicals, but then it doesn't list any chemicals. (laughs) And then it says, by law, a warning must be given for a listed chemical unless the exposure is low enough to pose no significant risk of cancer or is significantly below levels observed to cause birth defects or other reproductive harm. So if all of our vinyl samples have this warning on it, I'm inferring from this website that there is enough exposure with enough exposure you could have risk of cancer or other birth defects or reproductive harm which is kind of terrifying considering that this warning label is then given to whoever is using it in the hospital or Mm -hmm. in the restaurant like a lot of our customers would buy this for like booths at a restaurant and in california I mean, not so much in Pennsylvania, I would assume, but there are those warning labels posted in the restaurant, but people don't look at those. They're like, people don't. Well, and they don't know what it's about. Like if I specifically, I always think of Applebee's when I think of this, because I remember going to Applebee's with my sister and we saw the plaque outside that was like things within this business have been known to, you know, be carcinogenic or whatever. And we were like, well, like, what is it? Like, what's carcinogenic in here? Is it the food? Is it the packaging? And I guarantee it was the booths mm-hmm. and the carpet. 
you know, in the curtains and stuff. Like that had to be it, right? Like, but it's not clear enough. So you're just like, oh, people these days, they think everything will give you cancer. And then you go in there and eat anyway, right? Yeah. And like this law is the only reason that this warning label is on the vinyl from what I was told when I worked there was because it might get sent to California. And that's where the law is. Mm-hmm. So no, it's true. I've I've had to do uh, that for various items and always faux leather items that I have bought into at various jobs. Because if you think about it, I'm from PA. I've actually never been to California, sadly. That's on my list when we can travel again to go to California. But when, like, I'm from PA where, like, I'm pretty sure they have no, like, I don't know what their specific laws are, but we're way more lax on that stuff. If it's if <laughs> California is saying that at enough exposure, you could receive, you know, possibly cancer or birth defects. It's crazy to me that there's no law. That's like one of the only states where that is a law. Um, even yeah. in New York, I was asking like, well, what about New York? Because New York's like the other hot tip- ticket one. Um, they were like, no, there's nothing. No warnings. And like, no one was concerned. I was like surrounded by this letter all the time. <laughs> And I was like, I went home one day and was like, not only am I worried about getting COVID at work, but I'm also worried that I'm like being exposed to all these leathers and like, and like, you can tell they smell like, I don't want to be like, not in like, it smells like new plastic. And I'm like, is that the smell? Is that what it's going to get me cancer? Like, is that it? <laughs> like you end up worrying about it. PVC, which is like probably I would say is the more common one, especially if you're looking at like mm-hmm. a hospital or something where it's going to like get a lot more action, if you will. Uh, that's the one that gives off fumes that are carcinogenic. So probably, I mean, I think that is the smell. I think about taking the school bus as a kid and the bus had that smell that was very chemically. And if mm-hmm. the windows had been closed all day on the bus and it was like a warm day, it would like – it would be like a cloud when the door opened of like chemical smell. Yeah, it's not like a it's not like a leather smell. No, it's like, yeah, it's and totally even different. the leather smell is like the tanning, which is also chemical. Yeah, but it was like it was like smelling very chemically smell and uh, having known nothing about vegan leather until I started working here. Um, when I read that label, I was like, um, what? <laughs> And it's just brushed over, just like it would be brushed over if you read it at a restaurant. Nobody really knows what it means. They know we have to legally put it on there because it's California. I'm sure like people higher up than me actually were privy to the information about why. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like employers do this all the time to keep people working there. Like especially now, I've been I heard a friend talking about they're taking a class on diversity in the workplace and. Uh, we're talking about this is the first time in Amer- in history of the world that four generations are currently in the workforce. Oh, wow. And they were talking about how there's different ways people like to be communicated to. And when they're specifically talking about millennials, they're saying millennials care, like millennials and um, maybe a little bit the generation before millennials really don't take, uh, they don't consider their job like a part of them. Mm-hmm. They see themselves very separate from their job and they want to work somewhere where they agree with what the job stands for, um, which I definitely identify with. Um, but I was thinking about it as terms of like millennial, like everyone that was my age at the company was young, younger, was in a more entry level part of the job. And they would ask these questions to people from a different generation of them 
um, that might make the company look bad. If you ask that question, like, what are these warning labels about? Why are we warning Uh, people? What does the warning mean? And you would get this answer, like, because the generations above that, like boomer and like older generations, they take pride in their job and their job is a part of them. Like their position and their company Mm -hmm. is somehow identified with them. So they like kind of like you want to hide the bad stuff, Um, which is definitely how my grandparents were raised, hide the bad stuff. Oh, um, totally. We can totally, mental health can totally get into a whole conversation about that, but it, it goes into every part of your life. Um, and so when I'd ask these questions, people would be like, oh, they're not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And so when I actually read the label and like looked at it, I was like, this is why I can't work, <laughs> work in this industry anymore because I'm like – People need to know that this like chemicals are causing harm and you really can't escape it. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we would sell stuff that to people who put it in a booth at a restaurant, buses, trains, and it all has chemicals. And it's like the innovation needs to be done to say, how can we make something that still adheres to these laws? Because obviously I don't want things catching on fire. <laughs> we want it to be clean enough in a hospital but there has got to be a solution that's way more innovative that also doesn't subject people to carcinogens yes there just has to be there has to be and like we just need to figure it out they're just it's been like too easy to keep doing it only because no one has asked for something else and i think exactly that's why it's really important for us i know it's like really depressing. It's really overwhelming to hear these things, to know about them. But ultimately, knowing about it is step one to making things change because now you have the information to demand better. Yeah. And if you're like in an entry position or if you're in a position to change something, both people need to be aware of that and open to it because Mm -hmm. like – when I would get that answer, it would kind of feel like I'm hiding something, A. And B, I don't want your opinion on it. <laughs> and <laughs> I think companies need to start listening to all the different ways that people communicate. Because, like, the, the class was also telling them that they found that the older generation is almost being, like, because of the way that they communicate is so different than the people younger than them, mm-hmm. uh, there's a disconnect. So where's that disconnect? It's happening throughout every workplace. Like, you know, like my boss was like 40, but then their boss was probably like 50. And like, it was all getting misconstrued. And an only way for innovation to happen is if people get together and collaborate and find a better solution. Um, So how do we do that through like better communication? And I think it could even go down to the consumer level. Like what, like this warning you just put a website and that's it. And you did the bare minimum. Well, the bare minimum is not, I hope is not good enough anymore. I found that with like COVID-19 to be pretty prevalent. Like, like we're doing the bare minimum that the state requires us for COVID-19 for us to be open. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not okay with me. Like I read what the bare minimum was and I'm still going to get sick. So how do you take it to the next level where you actually really care about the people that are working for you or the people that are coming in, like how do you not get exposed? Um, You can take that into the whole system even like, okay, we know this is like really bad for the environment. 
And it's really bad for people's bodies. People could get cancer from this. Why isn't that enough to be like, how are we going to come up with a better solution? It's not a good enough answer because it's making the companies enough money right now. And if they changed it, there's a slight chance they might not make more money, I think is the, the capitalistic thought process. I have a hard time with capitalism because I'm like, so it's so ingrained. You're like, is that capitalistic or is that something else? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all tangled up. I think the COVID illustration is actually a really good example of like how millennials and Gen Z's view like corporate responsibility versus mm-hmm. how boomers do. And I hate to do that. Like, you know, go away boomer kind of attitude, but I noticed this over and over again across the internet, like throughout the pandemic. So I feel like when I look at, you know, the millennials and obviously Gen Z, everyone's like, hey, guess what? And and I would also put Generation X in this too. Mm-hmm. A massive part of the population is like, listen, companies need to keep their employees safe, period. It's not about doing the bare minimum. It's like everyone should get to work at home unless they physically can't do their job. And like we should be protecting retail workers and all of that stuff. We should be paying hazard pay. We shouldn't be laying people off just to like meet a profit margin goal. But then I would see articles coming out across like across the internet about different companies that were really fucking it up. And one example mm-hmm. – I can't name this company for legal reasons, but they are based in Philadelphia. And they were, there was like, I want to say it was in Philadelphia Magazine, Philadelphia Weekly. I have no idea. Um, You may have seen this article. They were having people come into the office during the pandemic whose work could be easily done at home. We're talking like designers Mm -hmm. and buyers. Yes, it made sense that people who like work in the photo studio, well, you kind of got to be there to take photos, right? I, I get that. But they were having other people come in as well. And people were frightened by that because they were working with a lot of other young people who weren't being very serious about being careful. People weren't wearing masks the way they were ought to. They didn't feel that the company was being transparent about who was sick and who was not. And there just weren't a lot of protections in place because the reality is, you can't have a bunch of people in an office, even if they're all wearing masks all the time, and know that it's 100% safe, right? For sure. And you know how mask usage slowly goes away. <laughs> like yeah. In a, like I mean, in a weird way, right? So, so, you know, I read this article and I'm like, yeah, that's really fucked up. Like companies need to be protecting their workers, right? I would look at the comments. I like – specifically I saw – like I found this article on an Instagram post – and the comments were just so off. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Just like people going off about whiny millennials don't want to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I'm a creep, so I would have to look at these people's profiles who are posting these comments. Of course, right? They're all older. Yeah. Yeah. you all older. Like my, you know, like our parents' age or older. Like posting like that kind of stuff or like, well, if you hate your job so much, quit it. And you're like, uh, you shouldn't have to choose between having a job and being and safe. safe. Like, it was just a lot of bullshit like that. And I was like, wow. Like, I could tell the comments from people who were like, this is really fucked up. I'll never buy anything from this company again. Those people I'd click into. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. They're like in, like, you know, they're like under 50, right? Under 60 maybe. Then I'd click into the ones that were like, if you hate your job so much, quit it. Or all you millennials do is whine. Click into it. That person's in their 60s or 70s. And I think 
that is so telling about how attitudes around corporate responsibility and like the way capitalism has been functioning are changing. I hope. Yeah, I hope. I completely agree. And I mean, not to, I what for legal reasons, won't name the company that I used to work for, but they were a small company. And like when it was presented to me in the interview, it, I, they had not had a COVID case within their office. And I was like, okay, I'm as an immune compromised person, I need to ask all these questions at this interview. So I asked like, if someone does get COVID, what is your plan? What are you going to do? And I was told we would most likely close. So that's just a very blanket statement so that if most they don't close, likely. they don't have to. Yeah. So then around like Thanksgiving time, five people got COVID, five, not even just one. Like it was every week. How they would tell us was they would put a sign on the time clock and say somebody in your in the office has COVID. What? They were exposed to I this hate time. this. Uh. And as an immune compromised person, I would, you know, be like, I'm leaving. I cannot be in the building. And then I would be told like, we changed the ventilation system and we have air purifiers in every room and we're spraying, we're spraying chemicals oh, every night, every really other night. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It's stuff like that. <laughs> and um, I was like, that's not enough for me. I still don't feel safe. That's not treating like, so, so then I would have to stay home and I would get unpaid. So then I asked if I could work from home. Mm, maybe I would say, it would depend because of my job. Some of it was required to be in house. I have to make samples. I have to use industrial machines, but some weeks I would be working from a computer for the entire week and putting mm-hmm. information. I was like, what about we assess the week before if I have to be in or not. And if I don't have to, if it's a computer thing, I can be home. That would just be, I, I just realized that would be just be inconvenient to the, the people above me because they would have to plan exactly what they needed me to do and they couldn't have me there at their beck and call there was no pivot it was just like no so then I went to three days a week so they I would only come in three days a week so then I was doing less work when I could have been doing all of the work at home and you know people would come into the office the people who nobody the only people that worked from home were people who had children who were doing school from home so accountants would work from the office people who only use their, their computer all day and factory workers. Like how could we keep people who are filling the order safe? Well, the accountants could work from home. It's all about this fear. Like the main thing was the fear that you wouldn't do your work while you're at home. I wish I had like an air horn or something right now to like ring or whatever honk when you said that, because that is exactly what it comes down to. It is a fundamental distrust of the employee's to get their jobs done. That is exactly what it is. And that is coming from older generation who like I, before working at this company worked strictly from home for an entertainment company doing work from home until the entertainment company obviously closed because there was no entertaining to be had. Um, So as a person who came from working from home for a year, I was like, wait, what, why would you not trust me to work from home? Like, what? Also, I'm a phone call, Zoom call, text, FaceTime away. And I think it comes from this, you know, capitalistic mentality of my friend was just like, the profit margin is more important than you. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought about it that way. And it can be said about anything. The profit margin is more important than the environment. 
the property, the profit margin is more important than inclusivity, you know, and we know that the profit margin would still be good if it was more sustainable, but people don't think that way because everything has to be better than the year before and more. And so this was probably like the first real time that like, not like there was like a very high chance that your profit margin was going to be worse for 2020 than 2019 because of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think that scared, like it scared business owners so much that people just did ridiculous things. Like, Yes, I couldn't report my company for what they did. They did the bare minimum. I like looked up legally what they could do. But when someone in your department comes down with COVID and then you call a meeting and you have all the people from that department meet in a conference room masked and you tell them that someone in your department has COVID, why did you think that was a good idea? Yeah. <laughs> like you just put everyone in a room that is potentially exposed and told them they were potentially exposed. And then they explained to me, like the other issue was like somebody very high up was one of the people that got COVID. So they had, now they're an expert on COVID. Um, they were like, <laughs> I went in a car with this person and I didn't give them COVID. So like, you won't get COVID. Uh, and it's like, no, that's not how it works. There's, there's no way to know. Yeah. And uh, I think people started to try and rationalize it. I have a lot of different companies. And I'd like to say that the company I worked for was the only company who did this. But everyone I know who does not work at home has a similar horror story about somebody getting COVID and not being informed in enough time or still being working at the office or like still being forced to come in, mm -hmm. people losing pay because they got COVID. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's all capitalism. And so is the whole reason that we even have a podcast to talk about sustainability is why are things not sustainable? Capitalism. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, Fortunately, this episode is actually going to air during April, which is Capitalism Month here at the podcast. So this is really great. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad we're talking about it. But yeah, all of the fundamental disregard for humans, for human life, for the planet, mm -hmm. it all stems from capitalism. And I feel like every time I talk about it that way, I feel like I'm like a 16-year-old who just learned the word capitalism at school. But like, unfortunately the system that we exist in right now rewards kind of lack of concern. I guess I would say, you know, that like the focus is profitability. The focus is not people. It's not the planet. It's not about feeling like you did the right thing because the only mm -hmm. right thing is making profit. It's making money. Yeah. And what is money? Fake. I know. <laughs> I know. I like heard this, like somebody was talking about it because, like I would like thankfully have a lot of friends who are like very outspoken about this uh talking like at, you know like a zoom party or something and people were like we are working for fake paper to give us more paper to buy plastic mm -hmm. to throw the plastic away yeah yeah <laughs> and uh why is like well, it was probably about the minimum wage uh, argument about why it should be probably way more than $15 by now um but anyway, like, why, why are we not raising federal minimum wage? People were like, oh, like, what about teachers? Everyone always says that. Like, oh, my gosh. If we raise the minimum wage, teachers make the same amount as people who work at fast food restaurants. Well, why do teachers get paid so little? So little. Right. And somebody was <laughs> like, my response to that is when I see, like, an older person say that on Facebook or something. Um, I probably should just copy and paste it every time. It's like, 
why should someone have to struggle, like work 40 hours a week or work at all? Why some people who have a job, why should they struggle to keep their house? Or if you're unemployed, why should you struggle to keep your house? (laughs) It doesn't matter. Why should anyone have to struggle to keep their house? Capitalism, money. I think the people higher up don't understand. They call it, you know, like I heard somebody say, like, it's just like pee in the ocean. You know, <laughs> why do we care about pee in the ocean? It's just, you know, it's insignificant. Well, if we're all not caring about it, the whole ocean is urine. You're swimming in urine. It's all bad. And that's what capitalism is. It's just all bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're all God. swimming in urine. <laughs> And we don't even know it. And we do things inherently that are capitalistic. Like when uh, starting my own business, it is so hard to think, not think about profit margins when you start your own business. You have to, right? You can't spend more than you make. Uh huh. And you have to spend more to make more. Right. That's all capitalistic. So you're sitting there and like I'm filling out those charts because you got to know so you can do your taxes. And you're just thinking about it and you're like, this is gross. I don't want to even think about it. I just want enough money to live. I don't want to make too much more. I want people that I make things for to be happy. And I want the planet to be happy. But we live in a society, unfortunately, where you can't only think like that. So then you have to kind of feed into it a little bit. Like, how can I get more people to see my stuff? How can I get more people to buy things? And then you like, sometimes I just like have to turn it off and walk away. And, uh, I was like thinking about it and my boyfriend was like, you know, that's like why people worked during COVID. It's because somebody decided we have to keep doing it the way we did it. We can't pivot because it might cost us to it might cost us everything. We might lose our profit margin. And I was like, ew, that's so gross. My first thing was like if I was a business owner, like who had employees, I would just be like, everybody go home and I'm just gonna pay you until the money runs out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean like it's a different attitude, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. it's okay to want to keep your business running. And, you know, like, for, like especially for the small business, you put so much of mm-hmm. yourself into this. But it's like a, quite another thing to be like, uh, but like, fuck everyone. And like, I am going to endanger people, not because I'm going to go out of business if we stay out of the office, but because I don't trust them or it's not going to mm-hmm. be as like profitable as I thought it would be. I mean, like, just all of the huge corporations that laid people off and didn't pay garment workers and stuff during the pandemic, they didn't do that because they were going to go out of business if they paid those people. They did that so they can ensure they made still made a high level of profit. And they used it. They used the pandemic as an excuse. Yes. Like, um, I had a friend, I won't name the company, it's another Philadelphia company, but I was working for a company who closed like three days after the pandemic, and they blamed it all on the pandemic. And she was like, well, they were doing really, really bad before. Like, they were probably on the brink (laughs) of closing anyway. Yeah. But they laid us all off the day after the pandemic and was just like, it's over. We're closed. But because they didn't, they didn't officially, like, close close. They didn't, like, say that they're closed to the public. All of their non-competes still stood. So you couldn't get another job, (gasps) even if you wanted to, because you signed a non-compete. And so stuff like that, like they didn't do that because they, you know, cared. (laughs) Like they did that quite the opposite. They didn't care. I've been at the, the, the end of the other end of like the not. I'm sure everyone's been at the other end where they like somebody, a meme said like, 
Have you ever cried over a job that you made less than $20 an hour? And it, I was like, yes, oh my God, I've I saw never that made one. $20 an hour. And I've <laughs> cried at every job I've ever had. <laughs> and it's like, you shouldn't be made to feel like shit because because <laughs> you're not doing enough. Like you are doing enough. <laughs> and uh, you aren't your job. And you aren't supposed to be, uh, if you make less than $20 an hour, you aren't supposed to be available to them when you're not there. <laughs> and I think that people like Gen X and younger are starting to be like, no, we won't tolerate this anymore, which is great because when eventually that means, you know, people who are our age and older will eventually become in charge of things like owning their own business or being the CEO of something. And I hope that when you get to that level and you see the disgustingness that has been left to you, you decide to change it because like, remember when you were 22 and you were an unpaid intern and you were told you had to go to New York for a business trip and you didn't get home till 10 PM. And then your boss called you and was like, I need you to send this email right now. And you're like, I've already worked 18 hours today and I don't even get paid, <laughs> you know, like yeah. little things like that. Like it's all pee in the ocean. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Well, I think this is a good transition into just asking what made you finally cut it off and go start your own brand full time. So, um, mostly I would say the like the last straw my boss at the time did say something very profound to me. She said um like we had a I had a performance review and uh my performance review was not good. I wasn't detail oriented enough apparently and they asked me if I had lied at the interview. Um, cause I told them I was detail oriented, but to my knowledge, I am detail oriented, just not in the way that they wanted me to be. Um, and so I was like really appalled by that question. Um, there was also some mentioning of like, I, you know, didn't wear enough deodorant, um, at that progress review. And that just stood for me the wrong what? way. And my, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they asked me if I was, if I, if there was a medical reason that I don't wear deodorant. And I said, I do wear deodorant. And then I was told my deodorant didn't work, which this is during COVID with masks. So if you're that close to me where you can smell me, you're too close to me because we're supposed to be socially distanced. That's what I said. I can't believe that they talked to you about that. I'm upset. Yeah, I went into my car and ate lunch and I cried in my car and then I thought about it and it took me six months to actually leave, fully leave because obviously money um, and living. But uh, I was like, I never want to be treated like that again, first of all. And something my boss said in the interview, in the progress review that stuck with me was like, you'll know if something doesn't work for you. It just will never work for you. And I thought about every job that I've ever had before that job. And I was like, they all didn't work for me. And I knew they didn't the second month I, you know, was there. And what does work for me? And during the uh, pandemic, I was unemployed from March, basically March 13th um, to March uh, till August. So that time I was unemployed. What did I do? I start like really started working on the brand, my brand, and I sold out multiple times and when mm -hmm. I started the, working there like started working there I was going to do both at the same time and what happened 
nothing happened. I didn't make collections. They didn't sell. We, we had a really hard time with business. Um, and I was like, wow. So like what did work for me was working for myself and I needed to do that. And what else worked for me? The community of people that I met. I met so many people like from my computer that I didn't know I was going to meet. And I was like, wow, that was so like beautiful and like profound. Like I found like purpose doing that. You know, it's really, really hard to work somewhere where you walk in and everything that they do, you don't stand for. Like you just are surrounded by a warehouse Mm -hmm. full of plastic and you don't, you, you're like anti-plastic and you're just selling plastic all the time and you're like I mean dude I've been there yeah (laughs) and I'm not saying that everyone can do this like obviously we need people to continue working with companies to try and make it better but my thought process was I'm not I'm not the voice that they are going to hear that's going to make them be anti-plastic I tried isn't Mm -hmm. my job or like my felt like my calling was to provide an anti-plastic option. Like obviously the, the fabrics that we use are polyester, like they're vintage. They probably have plastic in them, but like you said, use the plastic that is already here. Use the stuff that's already made and focus on like creating an environment for people where you feel like ethical. Like I felt like really unethical just going into work. And this was just not even at Mm -hmm. the current job I was at, just at any job. And I mean, also like no one wants to be told at work that they smell. I've had people like I'm sure in the. I mean that is fucked. I'm, I'm just gonna say it's that. super fucked. <laughs> and I've had in the fashion industry, like I worked in the fashion industry. Like I personally don't wear bras. Like I've never worn a bra. Like I've been told mm-hmm. since I was little I have to wear one, and I say no, I don't want to. I've had employers look at me and tell me to wear undergarments. <gasps> you know, like little things. Not like their that. business. Yeah, like the the places I was trying to work, they didn't want me and they don't serve like, and it didn't serve me. And I was replaceable. They replaced me with someone who wore a bra, like, you know, like, and that's cool. But, uh, that's why I stopped because I was like this industry, the only way I'm going to do something that I'm really passionate about. Like I love clothes so much. I had to work so hard Like I'm still working every day to slow down my consumption because I just love them so much. I see something beautiful. I want it. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. You see it? I like it. I want it. I bought it. (laughs) You know, like that's a song that we all listen to on the radio. And uh, so I was like, how can I show people that you can love clothes and you can buy them consciously without buying something that exploited someone that's cost someone their house? You Mm -hmm. know, like the people making this aren't, don't live the life the way that I live, you know, like, how can I be grateful for the things that already do exist and show people how to use them? Mm -hmm. And how can they be size inclusive? Because I, like, got to the point where, like, most of my life, I was definitely on the larger scale of things, but I could still buy at straight standardized stores. I would say now in the last year, that's probably not a possibility for me. And I felt really guilty about that. Like, oh, people, like articles everywhere about gaining the COVID-15, like the freshman 15. Oh, God, I wish they would all go away. I heard one on NPR actually the other day about kids gaining weight during the pandemic, and I got Mm -hmm. just so sad, you know, for those kids. And like, oh, 
not because they gained weight, but because they have, hear they have to it. hear, they have to be in the car while their mom's driving them somewhere and they get to hear the story. You know what I mean? Like, just, yeah. No. And like, just hearing, I like, if you've heard your like entire life that your body is not acceptable, like, I don't know how many people mm-hmm. I've talked to who bought clothing for me that were like, thank you for offering my size. And I was like, please don't thank me. This is the bare minimum. It's not, size inclusivity should not be a perk of a company. It should be standard. Everyone's size should be available. I know. It should just be how it goes. I agree. It makes me so angry. I wanted the company to be specifically for people who can't find clothes because I know the struggle Mm -hmm. of finding it and who want to be in slow fashion. Like I know so many people who are like, I just want to be a part of slow fashion and like not fast fashion, which is also a buzzword. I feel like slow fashion is a big buzzword, but uh, I want to be more ethically, mm -hmm. like an ethical consumer, but they don't have my size. And I was like, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. Everybody's size needs to be included. And uh, that's where where a lot of like custom clothes come into. I was looking at vintage specifically and I was like, you know, this is handmade. I was like, and my grandma was telling me like everything we we wore back then was handmade. If we were like couldn't afford to buy clothes, we made our own clothes. And I was like thinking about it, and I was like, well, duh. Why don't we offer custom clothes? <laughs> like people wouldn't overconsume if it fit. I know. I agree because I feel like that's a big part of why people buy more clothes because their current clothes aren't actually like exactly right for them. I mean, I've totally mm-hmm. felt that way. You know, I bought stuff. It was okay. I wore it a couple times, but I was like, it just, it just isn't as good as it could be. And I was talking about this with someone else who was like, yeah, well, the problem is, and this is true, this is another way in which like all of us need to like reset our thinking. The problem is that many people are now so accustomed to being able to like get that instant gratification of buying something and then immediately taking it home and wearing it or getting it shipped to them in just a few days that people don't want to wait for the custom clothes to be made for them. And that is wild to me. Like, I agree. uh, We have a four week waiting period, which I think is still pretty fast mm -hmm. for custom clothing. But sometimes we even send it out in a week. Like if we make it and it's made, we're not going to wait and we'll send it to you as soon as possible. But like, I've had people message me and be like, like, they order something and then they'll email me and be like, I know that. Uh, you said it takes about four weeks, but I need it like in three days. Can you do that? And I'm like, absolutely Uh, not. Yeah. I'm here for retail saying no. We're so used to retail saying yes. I know I worked at Mm -hmm. anthropology where we weren't allowed to say no. We had to say it a different way. Sometimes you just got to say no. People need to hear no. Mm -hmm. You're not always right. This is how things work. These are the rules. You know, this is how I can have a work-life balance just like you want. Um, a four week waiting period is custom for custom clothing. And when you get it, if it's not right for you, just send us an email, you know, uh, we do free alterations. We don't want you to put it in the back of your closet and never wear it. We want you to pull it out when like, every time you want to feel good, you're like, I know I'll feel good in this, in in this garment. Right. right, And I think because of the instant gratification that we've received through like Amazon prime and like, overnight shipping and like stuff like that it's created this like I need it now and I'm Mm -hmm. gonna get it now Mm -hmm. like even I find that like I had a vendor who's like sending me uh 
a whole big box of fabric. And it's been about two weeks. And I'm like, where is it? Like, oh my God, where is it? It's been so long. And then I was like sitting back and I was like, you'll get it when you get it. (laughs) Yeah, it'll come. It'll come. Totally. I think that uh, this is another way in which we have to like reset our thinking. And it's hard because, you know, we're accustomed to being able to either go to a store and have it right away or like, like you said, the retail industry has worked so hard to make us happy at all times that they have now made stuff come to us even faster and faster mm-hmm. when we sh- when we buy it. And so it's like we just we just have to change our thinking. I would rather wait a month for something that I love than get something overnight that I fucking hate and is like a burden that I see in my closet all the time and I get depressed about. Which we all know that feeling. Oh, yeah. I have some stuff in my basement that I just need to get rid of that I'm like, it's in that box, you know, like it did fit and it will fit later. That's mm-hmm. not a thing. It won't fit later. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. It's yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was exactly. told like, I mean, I get it as a child. My parents, like we didn't grow up with a lot of money. We gave a lot of things like hand-me-downs or we got hand-me-downs. Um, my mom would always say like, you know, keep it like it might fit later or you might like it later or something else. Um, my thought process with that now is like, it's okay if it doesn't fit ever again. There's somebody else who can wear it. Like, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. make sure it gets to some, like try to get it to someone else, like donate it or ask a friend who you, you know, like I have a friend and I, we every month go through our closet and like pull out a couple things that we just don't wear and we'll you know, bring it to the other person's house and trade it. Now during COVID, that's kind of harder, but like, right. I'm sure I'll have a garbage bag of <laughs> um, things that I can <laughs> give to her or a whole sack of stuff I can give to somebody. But uh, doing stuff like that, like promoting clothing swaps and drops, like, I mean, my eventual dream is to have a brick and mortar store, obviously. And like, I want people to be able to come in and pick out their fabric off the shelf and we measure them and then they come back and they get it and pick it up after right. it's made but that's such an old process my mom was like they used to do that back in the day <laughs> I'm like why don't we do that anymore <laughs> um like that would be like my, my ideal scenario for uh continuing it but yeah why I left like I guess it boils down to like it didn't serve me I wasn't I wasn't being authentic or transparent to myself or other people I didn't feel like I was being transparent to the people who were receiving the product And I also just didn't feel like, I was like, fuck it. You don't care about me. (laughs) Like, fuck it. I care. I care about what I give. And, uh, and also I don't smell. (laughs) God, I just can't. I mean, that is the reason right there. I mean, I get it. I have had jobs where it has been very clear that I am like the outcast Mm -hmm. and it's like, I want to leave, but like, it's just not that simple. Like the people who are on Instagram being like, well, if you hate your job so much, why don't you go quit? And it's like, well, actually, like, because getting another job is hard, yeah. you know, and not going to happen overnight. And it took like seven months. And I wouldn't say that even when I left, I was a- I'm able to fully sustain myself right now. It wasn't because my sales went up enough that I could do right. it. It was like, I'm going to take this jump and hope that it were like a free fall <laughs> out of <laughs> out of the industry. And um yeah, I mean, it just got to the point where there was so too many people getting sick and I didn't know if I was ever going to qualify for the vaccine that I was like, you know what, I'm tired of waking up every day being afraid that I'm going to risk my health and 
to say that that's an easy thing to do is not easy because I have friends who work in restaurants, friends who work, who work in retail where like, they're like, that's not possible. I have to live with that fear. And that's capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like people Mm -hmm. are living with the fear just so that you can go out to eat or like people can make money. Um, People have to be afraid that they're going to get sick. And that's scary to me. (laughs) I never thought I would be saying that. And like two years ago, if that if you were like, we're going to talk about this on a podcast, I'd be like, what? (laughs) And (laughs) And here you are. And here you are. So are you working on anything really cool coming up that you want to tell everyone about? Yeah. So I actually, I'm not sure exactly when this will air. So maybe it will already be out. Um, April 1st, we're dropping a collection with a artist that I met from San Antonio. She makes pom-pom earrings and, um, where her name is Puff Puff Pom Pom. And we she made some exclusive earrings for our website that go with the pre-made, we make pre-made garments about once a month, we drop some pre-made garments. And so that collection is going to be a little collab. And then May 1st, we're having a tie-dye artist who um, took a bunch of our white fabric and dyed it for us. Her name is Kylie and it's to die for on Instagram. She is going to be dyeing them and we're going to have a collab with some garments. So I love doing collabs. So I have a lot of collabs coming up. And um, I guess if you just want to follow us, we're um, Shop Genron on everything. So I hate plugging myself, but if you want to come, <laughs> if you want to come see what we're doing, um, come over there. My sister uh, Annie is in college and she is my TikTok extraordinary uh, intern help. Um, I was like, please help me. I'm too old for TikTok. <laughs> but she's got me on there now and I'm on there doing it. Uh, and uh, we uh, keep everybody up to date but on what we're doing on there and on Instagram. So That's amazing. Thank you so much for stopping by. I was going to throw in some questions about capitalism and then you just went for it. I'm so happy. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Jenna, for literally spending hours recording with me. I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise. You can find Jenna's brand, Shop Genron, on Instagram at shopgenron and at shopgenron.com. I'll link to those in the show notes. Go support Jenna so she never has to take a dumb, mean job again, please. And If you have thoughts about the things we talked about here, please reach out. How do you think employers should keep their workers safe from COVID? Is it their job at all? Uh, Should they tell you to wear a bra or criticize your deodorant? I have to tell you that I had a boss tell me that I would never succeed in my career if I didn't start shaving my armpits, that my hairy armpits made me not promotable. That was the adjective, promotable. (laughs) Is that a word? I don't even know. But it was terrifying to me. And you know what I did? Went home, shaved my armpits. I'm a good capitalist drone. So yeah, tell me your stories. Share your opinions on capitalism, labor, etc. I know that capitalism feels like a heavy and intimidating thing to talk about. But when you realize that big ideas and systems like that manifest themselves as actual experiences we're having, it becomes a lot easier to talk about. The personal is political. And sharing our experiences and stories empowers the entire community. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. 
As I always say, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or consider subscribing and tell your friends. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I've been doing these Instagram lives where I take your questions, I talk about the blog, one of my cats pops up to scratch the furniture, and I try to wear a pretty good outfit. This Friday is going to be extra special because I'm going to be doing it with Sammy of Dylan Page. And we'll be talking about what is fast fashion, my experiences working in the industry, and so on. So you won't want to miss it. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And I'll just recommend this as I do every week in every episode. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out The Department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. Right now, we're in the midst of a mini-series about online dating, and it's so interesting and hilarious. So you might want to check it out. And thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.